welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. As Florida election officials continue to recount ballots in the state Senate and gubernatorial races, Democratic candidate Andrew Gillum is remaining hopeful and slamming critics of the recount process. God knows how this thing will end up ultimately, but if you've got confidence, if you've got assuredness that the voters of this state chose you, then you would want every single vote to be counted, every one of them. And joining us is Rich Brafault. He's a professor at Columbia Law School. So, Rich, it's deja vu all over again. Are you having nightmares about hanging chads, or is this something altogether different in Florida? Well, it's not going to be hanging chads this time, but it is kind of amazing uh, that we're, we're back in a similar situation of recounts and counting ballots all over again. Um, I'm hopeful it won't be quite as crazy as last time, and uh, it's a little earlier stage in the process. We're literally going to go, I think, to the machine recount in the Gillum race, and there'll be, there will be a hand recount, uh, a manual recount in the, the Senate race because it's so close. But I, hopefully, I think we're past hanging chads. Now, there's a judge in Florida who uh, said today he has seen no evidence of wrongdoing in the vote counting in Broward County, and and he urged all sides to ramp down the rhetoric, uh, saying that the citizens uh, need reassurance that the integrity of the recount is being protected. Is that really threatened? I think it's a very good point. I mean, I think there's been a lot of really wild, wild and unsubstantiated accusations, um, um, more on the Republican side or entirely on the Republican side, as they saw their leads begin to get smaller uh, as a result of the continually flowing in of that of late ballots, absentee ballots, provisional ballots. I think part of what we're seeing in Florida, which makes this one different from um, 2000, and it's not just in Florida, though Florida is really close, is the enormous turn to mail-in voting that really did not exist in 2000. So part of the reason that this takes so long um, is that ballots continue, ballots are, are to arrive several days after Election Day that were legally postmarked on Election Day. And so those come in late, and then there are, it's a close race, and then there are some legitimate questions uh, for absentee ballots on signature matches, which I think is triggering some of the dispute. I want to mention that Independence USA, a super PAC funded by Michael Bloomberg, donated to the campaign of Democrat Andrew Gillum. Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio. So, Rich, both Senate candidates have lawsuits pending. And just recently, the Broward County Circuit Court judge said he won't issue an injunction that is being sought by Rick Scott. Tell us what kind of an effect an injunction would have had. Well, I think the idea was that it was going to, in effect, uh, sort of seize the, the, the voting machine, seize the ballots, and kind of freeze the process. And I think the, by not granting an injunction right now, uh, it allows the process to go forward. Rich, there, are, there seem to be, you know, numerous races still at play uh, almost a week after the mm-hmm. election now. Uh, is it just my memory, or is it more than usual? And if so, why? Well, I think part of it is what I was saying a second ago, which is the rise of mail-in ballots. I mean, the states where I think there's the most still out there, uh, 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 Georgia, Florida, Arizona, California, California in the the House races, Arizona in the Senate, are states which which are heavy users of mail-in ballots. Uh, which the, and again, the deadline for those in some states is typically is, is election day for, me, but they can be postmarked on election day in some states, which means they can come in several days later. 
And so, and then, and they're counted you know, as they come in. There are military ballots that come in, and there are provisional ballots, which is something that didn't exist in 2000, where if you are, if you say that you're a registered voter, but your name doesn't appear on the rolls, you can fill out a provisional ballot and then come back later and have it checked uh, to see whether you, you were or were not a registered voter. And so I think the combination of the regular classical election day voting with a lot of, of, of um, mail-in voting and other kinds of votes that come in late has what plus really tight elections is what tends to stretch this out. Rich, let's talk a little bit about Georgia. Stacey Abrams filed a federal lawsuit yesterday asking a judge to delay vote certifications in Georgia. Tell us what she's seeking there. I mean, she's had a lot of complaints about the voting process since the beginning. Right. I mean, again, as you recall, before the election, there were issues about uh, the delay in uh, sort of transmitting registrations um, to, uh, to polling places. I think, again, it's a pro- part of the problem, I think, is with signature matches. Uh, there were issues with signature matches before the election. Uh, again, people who mail-in vote ballots, particularly first-time mail-in voters, uh, there, ha- there has to be a match of the signature, which is on the outside of the ballot, with the signature they have in the central registry or the, their, their official registered signature. And I think some of the disputes, some ballots have been, uh, have been turned down on the theory that they didn't match. And I think she, her argument is to make sure that every, is to have a kind of a complete review of the propriety of the matching so that no ballots that should have been counted uh, are not counted. She also has this related issue, as you know, uh, in Georgia, in order to win, you've got to get 50% plus one. So although it seems unlikely you know, uh, that she can actually catch up to Kemp right now, if she can get enough votes that he falls below 50% plus one to 49.999, uh, there will be a runoff. There will be a second-round election between her and him, I assume, sometime in December. Just want to update our listeners to some breaking news uh, on the Bloomberg terminal. Uh, the president, uh, President Trump, uh, via Twitter saying today that Saudi Arabia and OPEC should not cut oil production. Uh, Rich, back to the election. How mm-hmm. long could some of these contests be drawn out? Well, um, there are each of these states has deadlines for final submissions, and the Florida one is soon. But if there continue to be disputes about how the counting was done, they could be subject to lawsuits. I mean, um, famously or notoriously, uh, the Minnesota Senate race from 2000, 2008, I think that took almost six months till it wrapped up. Uh, that was uh, unusually wildly long. I don't expect any of these things to run that long, but it could take a couple of weeks until everything is, is truly finally resolved. These are close elections. All right. It's, it's fascinating. And who ever thought we'd be going through this again? Thanks so much, Rich. That's Richard Perfault. He's a professor at Columbia Law School. After President Trump appointed Matt Whitaker as acting attorney general, Senator Mark Warner, the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, issued a warning about the potential consequences for the Mueller probe. He's already opined both in writing and verbally on the Mueller investigation. So he, based on just legal ethics, he should recuse himself from any oversight. But over the weekend, Bloomberg reported that Whitaker will not cut the budget for Mueller's investigation. Joining me is Jeffrey Kramer, a former federal prosecutor and managing director at the Berkeley Research Group. Jeff, not only has Whitaker been an outspoken critic of the Mueller investigation, but he has said that Marbury versus Madison was incorrectly decided and that the courts are an inferior branch of government. What's your reaction to his appointment? 
Uh, well, there's a lot to unpack. I think uh, I think my reaction is, is probably consistent with uh, a lot of what maybe some of my former colleagues uh, have have written and discussed. There's a couple levels. One, if, can he take over the Department of Justice constitutionally? Um, he has not been confirmed by the Senate for this role, although he was confirmed as the U.S. Attorney in Iowa, but that was what's called an inferior position, if you will. In other words, doesn't report directly to the president. Although he's an interim, there's really no emergency agency here that warrants that when you do have two people, uh, Rosenstein as well as the uh, Solicitor General, who have been confirmed. So that's the first layer. The second layer is more, I don't know, it's more problematic, but is, is certainly an issue, is can he take over the Mueller investigation? Um, and that uh, gets to a host of issues, including conflicts of interest, as well as perhaps where his loyalties lie. So, Jeff, can the Internal Ethics Department at the Justice Department, the same department that told Jeff Sessions he should recuse himself from the Mueller investigation, can it just start an inquiry on Whitaker's possible conflicts of interest, or does there have to be a request from a specific person or department? Usually there has to be a request to the ethics area. Now the inspector general uh, can look at it, but there's no reason for him to do that yet. No action has been taken by Whitaker. Um, uh, you know, so while the ethics officer can opine, it usually comes in the, after someone requests uh, an ethics opinion. Um, now, again, as it stands now, Mr. Whitaker can do what he wants. The ethics opinion is just that. It's an opinion. It doesn't have the force of law. Um, and other courts, you know, there may be a, a court case to, uh, to compel him to stand down from this, but it really is problematic. No action has been taken yet, but the issue is we don't know if any action will be taken. It's easy to slow walk something at the Department of Justice. I don't expect an edict to come out uh, firing Mueller, uh, but you can certainly slow walk things. So none of this is news, I would imagine, uh, to Mr. Mueller. Uh, so we don't know whether there were already uh, cases in the hopper. They could be sealed. There already could be grand jury testimony taken, obviously, on some items. Uh, but we are in uncharted waters, uh, and as you correctly you know, indicated in your first question, with a man that doesn't even believe in, in the concept of constitutional review by the judiciary. This is a strange one. Now, let's talk a little bit just about Mueller and his being very aware of what's going on at all times, and from all accounts, a, a very, very smart prosecutor. There has been speculation that he might actually have sealed grand jury indictments already. If he wants to unseal those, does he have to get Whitaker's approval for that? Uh, I would say no. However, you could make an argument on the other side, uh, because any time uh, the uh, special counsel takes uh, any action of a certain level, and certainly indicting somebody would be that, it has to be approved right now by the DAG, the Deputy Attorney General, maybe it's Whitaker. I think the exception might be, as, as you indicated, if it's already been voted on by the grand jury, and the courts have it, it's just sealed. I think logic would dictate that's probably out of the scope of, uh, of Mr. Whitaker or uh, even uh, the Deputy Attorney General at this point. It's a fait accompli if it's with the courts. So speaking of slow walking things in the Justice Department, would Mueller be wise to slow walk his report until there's another attorney general appointed, until there's a permanent <laughs> attorney general appointed so that something will be it won't be squashed? <laughs> You know, it, it, maybe. The problem is you don't know what's coming down the park. We don't know 
if uh, Mr. Whitaker will stay uh, in charge of the investigation. We don't know if there's a new attorney general who uh, would be confirmed by the Senate, now a Republican majority of Senate, obviously, after the election, and they've increased by a vote. You don't know who that's going to be. So I don't know if it gets any better for Mr. Mueller. The difference is you now will have, in a few months, a Democratic uh, House of Representatives who could simply call Mr. Mueller in to testify as a witness, and what'd you find? Um, so, you know, does that bypass the requirements under special counsel uh, to pass everything by the supervisor, which, again, is either the deputy attorney general or Mr. Whitaker, depending who you ask? I don't even think the White House has been clear as to what they expect uh, of Mr. Whitaker. I think they just put him there just in case as a stopgap. He hasn't had to do anything yet, hasn't had to make any decisions yet, at least overtly, uh, but that could change tomorrow. No one has really been talking about the effect on the people within the Justice Department who are career Justice Department employees and, you know, moving Whitaker in ahead of Rod Rosenstein and some of the other things that are going on. Is that going to have an effect on morale? That's a great question. Uh, at the at the U.S. attorney level, a little bit, but for the most part, the you know the ninety uh, some odd offices of the U.S. attorneys just focus on what's going on in their jurisdiction. Uh, but it would be naive to think that there's not something with respect to uh, having a leader you can respect, having an attorney general that sets the tone, and that is certainly not the case now, and it probably wasn't under Sessions as well. Within Maine Justice, you know the people who work in the Department of Justice and the Beltway. Uh, that's probably more chaotic because they don't know if he's going to stay. They don't know if he's allowed to stay. They don't know the parameters of his responsibility. While he was a U.S. attorney in, in Iowa, that was a political placement by the senator there. He has never been a prosecutor, a line prosecutor before. He's just kind of, you know, living a life and, and getting picked to be put in certain places, not because he's a very good prosecutor. He hasn't done the job. It's just he's gotten the political juice, if you will. It was chief of staff, and now all of a sudden he's acting attorney general. It's uh, it, it's an amazing feat on his on his part. It's certainly, it's so murky, this area. It's hard to have any clear, defined answers. But we continue talking about it and trying to figure <laughs> out what it what is happening behind the scenes. Thanks so much. It's great to have you on, Jeff. That's Jeff Kramer. He's a former federal prosecutor, and he's managing director at the Berkeley Research Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.